0: That sounds so antithetical to the modern believer who shuns suffering, moves away from it. Um, and yet she wasn't, I mean, she wasn't sentimentalizing it. She, she was someone who was suffering from lupus. And at the same time, she says, you know, I can, with one eye squinted, see it as a blessing, right? But I am sick of being sick. I know that this is hard. This is something that I will always bear until I die. And yet, what is that suffering doing? How do I respond to it? And the way she does that is she produces great
1: literature. Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Zhaja, producer. Award-winning author Jessica Hooten-Wilson has written an exciting new book called The Scandal of Holiness. It's about how we're called to live beyond a merely mundane existence of settling for small goals. In fact, we're called to live a life of holiness— Hooten Wilson instructs us on how hearing the call to holiness requires cultivating a new imagination, one rooted in the art and discipline of reading. Reading with eyes attuned to the saints who populate great works of literature enables us to see how God opens up ways of holy living. Sarah Negri, Acton's research project coordinator, sits down with Hooten Wilson to discuss how literature has the power to show us what a true holy life looks like. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at actin.org/podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Actin Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.
2: Welcome to Actin Line. I'm Sarah Negri, Research Project Coordinator at the Acton Institute. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson, Louise Cowan Scholar-in-Residence for Humanities and Classical Education at the University of Dallas. She is the author of several books, including Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year in Arts and Culture Award. In 2019, she received the Hyatt Prize for Humanities from the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. She is also co-editor of the volume Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West, a collection of essays on the legacy of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Her recent books this year are The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints, and Learning the Good Life from the Great Hearts and Minds that Came Before. Today we'll be diving into Jessica's book, The Scandal of Holiness, in which she delves into over a dozen 20th century works of fiction, highlighting characters who can inspire us to strive after holiness, and pinpointing the qualities they exemplify that we can imitate. Jessica, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. It's great to have you. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. It gave me chills at times, sometimes moved me almost to tears. And certainly inspired me to pursue the call to holiness, which I think was your intention for all of us to come away with that. So it was a great read. Um, And to start us off, can you explain how it's possible for fictional characters to help us grow in virtue Um, by providing an example to our imagination, but specifically what the distinct role for fiction is in inspiring holiness as opposed to spiritual guidebooks or factual lives of the saints?
0: Sure. You know, it was interesting. I did a book club this last Tuesday by Christine de Bazan, the 14th century writer who wrote the book of the City of Ladies. And I was leading this with a group of people who, you know, they live in my small town and uh, they're all great readers, but this was a completely, you know, unfamiliar text. And as you're going through the book of the City of Ladies, you have all of these accounts of amazing women. Some of them are goddesses. Some of them are fictional women from, you know, the Iliad or the Odyssey. Some of them are biblical figures. Some of them are historical figures. And the question came up, how can she put all of these characters together when some of them are real and some of them are not? And the medievals just didn't have that distinction that really takes hold of the more modern mind post scientific revolution in which we think the only things that are real are those that are empirically verifiable or at least that's what we say we think is real when in reality you know the way we actually practice what we believe to be real is we talk about biblical figures you know we know Abraham well do you I mean you know these stories and then that figure of Abraham then becomes part of your treasure trove in your mind and heart Or the stories you read when you were a kid, you know, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or Tolkien, or any of these characters, they start taking over in your mind as people you know, stories you know, that the way you then perceive the whole world is through these stories and with these characters as part of your memory, right? They become as as real to you in your memory as the memory of your grandfather, who maybe is gone, or the memory of the stories that your parents told you about when they were young and who they were. And so you have these stories that inhabit our imaginations and yet what do we choose to populate that treasure trove with, right? What do we choose to populate our storehouse with? So what I'm saying in my book is that instead of letting the marketplace determine for us that we're going to have Thor in our imagination and that we're going, (laughs) to, you know, which I love the Marvel movies, you know, you're going to have Doctor Strange in your imagination. What if we spent a lot more time investing in figures? like those who pursued holiness in these fictional novels. And we filled our storehouse intentionally with the kinds of people that we want to inhabit within us.
2: Yeah, that's a great answer. What would you say to someone who is pursuing holiness, but doesn't necessarily see the value in fictional role models, where they prefer to stick with historical figures who have achieved holiness? What would you say that the story can offer them in a fictional setting?
0: Yeah, I think there's two different ways to answer it. One, which I kind of was leaning or, you know, moving us towards is that really the distinction between historical and fictional is uh, more stringent now than it has been for centuries because... In reality, any, any historical account that you are reading is still a story. It's a narrative, and you can find some empirical evidence to back up that narrative, but um, the idea of a biographical reality, <laughs> it's still tinged by how you tell the story, how you collect the, fa- the facts, the pattern you put that narrative into that becomes a historical tale that t- populates your mind in a very similar way to the way the fictional one does if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So whether someone is biographically real <laughs> or fictional, um, those distinctions are just to me, they're more permeable than than we usually think of them. But secondarily when you're reading a narrative, there's an intentionality oftentimes with the author to place the reader in the story. And it's very intentional to get you to live vicariously through the character's life, right? The, the events are structured in such a way, the sentences are written in such a way that allows you to embody them, to imbibe the sentences, to um, feel that exaltation that comes with a certain pathos that the author is doing purposefully to train your desires in a certain way, to move your emotions towards good things. Um, so there is some more intentionality with the fictional narratives versus the biographical ones.
2: Speaking of that historical distinction that we've sort of lost between uh, fictional and fact, can you talk about why you chose to write only about 20th century novels, why you chose more modern works of literature, and sort of as a counterpoint to that, why some of those books, many of those books, have sort of a historical flavor, an old-fashioned setting? Uh, Some of them are even retellings of older tales like the Book of the Dun Cow. Can you explain why you chose more modern works, but also your thoughts on that historical feel? Yeah. So
0: I had another book, as you mentioned, come out in May, which is Learning the Good Life, and it's all historical works, right? It's more of the canon or what we would think of as the canon. It's all the great books that have come before. And so in my my work, I have a strange connection between my creative writing. Uh, position, I'm often a professor of creative writing, and I'm also a professor of great text. And so I kind of mold these two worlds together in which the tradition we've come from. We're supposed to pass it on, and the best way to pass it on is to create new narratives that help pass that on to the next generation. So tradition comes alive in that sense. So I wanted to show the ways in which the tradition has stayed alive in these contemporary novels. Uh, A lot of people that really uplift the tradition, that uplift the canonical great books or uplift um, the great writers of the past, the best that has been thought and said – They neglect to see how that is still alive and present in contemporary fiction. And a lot of what I read and the way I train writers today is to participate by knowing what's happening. Um, How did these writers then tell that story in a way that the true, good and beautiful comes alive for 21st century readers. And so, you know, I decided to do these novels. The novels are, you know, rather new genre, but it's taking advantage of these old epic stories, these myths or Chaucer's tale as in the book of the Cow, being retold in a novel form. Uh, that way that people can hear the story anew who may have heard it in the past, uh, but it felt ancient or it felt old to them. This makes it come alive and real to
2: them now. I love that. It reminds me of a quote I heard one time about... If you try to be original, you're going to fall flat. But if you try to tell the truth, you're going to be original Ooh. because those truths are just timeless. And if you, if that's what you stick to wanting to share, if that's the story you want to tell, it'll come out through your own lens in a new way for a new audience that needs to hear it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Walker Percy tells the story of how he became a writer. And here's one of the best-selling novelists of the 20th century. And he said, I sat down with a pen and paper without any intention to copy the voices of the past, but to find my own way and be original. And I found myself instead imitating Dostoevsky and <laughs> Dante, <laughs> you know, because the reality is that you, it's impossible to be original. Uh, so you just have to be more
2: volitional in who you imitate and how you imitate them. Yeah, that's great. In your introduction, you talk about how our modern mindset tends to cast us as either the hero or the author of our own stories, when in reality we're neither. Can you talk about how reading the stories of others, like Loris, in the first chapter of your book, help us to understand the narrative that we are a part of while keeping God as the main character? Oh, that yeah, that's fantastic. You know, that's a really convicting novel
0: because the character pretty much loses his whole reason for living, which is the love of his life, and instead submits himself to God and has God write his story from then on because he's he's driven instead by how do I love this woman who has gone from me, right? What does it look like to love while she's away? Um, and so this, the story of Loris it shows a providential view of time in which the character cannot construct his story. He, he did not decide... To lose his loved one. He did not make those kinds of decisions. Instead, his agency is how he responds to suffering, how he responds to the things in his world. And I think too often we fall for the lie or the delusion that we get to make ourselves, right? The self-made man of Emerson or something that we get to actually make our story and we're going to decide our life and we're going to plan the things. And yet there's so much that's outside of our control. And whenever we're confronted with those realities, the way Loris is in, in the narrative we're perplexed. I mean, why is this out of my control? Why is this happening to me? Whereas if we from the beginning to the end saw that God is writing our story, we would be able to fully embrace that the freedom we have to respond with grace, the freedom we have to respond in obedience to the story that's being told with our lives. And I I believe from reading these these narratives, these novels that we are actually a part of a much greater story than we could write if we're doing it by ourselves. And so I find it a freeing thought, not an oppressive one to know that I'm not the author of my own story.
2: Certainly. And even at the end of the novel, I have not read the novel, but you mentioned that Loris himself feels like his life is disconnected, feels like he's lived multiple lives, and he can't necessarily see the narrative. But the author is able to present it as this unifying vision that's very convincing for people. Yeah,
0: you know, I read this book recently. Um, I don't think it's come out yet. By um, her last name is Wickoff, W Y C K O F F. Um, I don't remember Mallory, maybe Wickoff. And and she was talking about looking back on her life and saying, like, I can remember how I used to be at ten years old, but it looks like a different person. It's like a character from a novel when I look back and think about that ten-year-old, or if I look back and think about the twenty-one-year-old I was. And I think that all of us kind of have that if we really think about it looking back at our lives, it doesn't look like us. It looks like lots of different people that we've been. And that's what Loris deals with, you know, right. He has all these different names for the people he used to be, um, how he was known in different cities and different places and different times in his life. And it's like looking at different characters. And I think, but I think that that's, that's the way that we grow as people, right. We're always moving towards a truer identity, um, than the one we began with, right? When we don't, we don't really know ourselves when we're younger, and hopefully we we gain more and more knowledge as we move through these characters uh, as God's writing the story for us.
2: So most of the authors that you focus on in this book are Christian. Some of them underwent conversion experiences and came to see their novel writing as a way to bring others to a true understanding of human life as a journey back to God, as God writing their story. Uh, you do mention at least one work by an agnostic. And I was curious if you could talk about the author's prerogative in crafting these characters that exemplify holiness to others, and essentially what kind of a person the author needs to be in order to make those examples genuine and in accordance with the truth. In other words, can they, can they write about fictional saints without being saints themselves? And maybe as a follow-up to that, you could also touch on, would you say it is these authors' vocation to craft these literary saints, and in what way... By doing that, can they themselves pursue holiness? Mm, fantastic. Yeah, so I actually
0: write, there's a, you know, Cather is agnostic, I would say, uh, Zora Nell Hurston, atheist, and and yet I'm writing about their works in which they have shown me so much about how to pursue holiness. And if you look at, as a Christian, as I look at scripture, um, there are no good characters in the Bible. <laughs> everybody in the Bible is like a bad person. <laughs> but that's the whole point of the story is that God is the one who shows up in these people's lives. So you look at, for example, Gideon um, in the book of Judges is just a really horrible judge. And yet God does great things through this horrible person. Um, at the same time, you have someone like Paul, who's a really horrible person. But then when God meets him on the road to Damascus, like he submits himself to and then becomes a different person than he was before. So the amount of good that Paul can do when the spirit now is living through him versus who what he could do when he was Saul is vastly different. So I'm not saying that you, um, the atheists are the you know best writers of literature. I'm just saying that even when they're atheist, writing literature, the spirit can move through that versus someone like Flannery O'Connor who completely gives herself over to God, gives like, she calls herself God's typewriter. She wants him to write the stories through her. It's a diff, she's capable of a different kind of art, I think, than even what Cather or Hurston were capable of uh, as far as showing us what holiness looks like because of her submission as an artist. I think there's just a lot more capability there. Um, it's one of the reasons I teach in the St. Thomas program, the MFA at, in Houston, because there they're being really intentional about choosing the kinds of artists that they want to imitate, not just the kind of art they want to imitate. And I do think that there's a lot to be said for that, um, for actually being obedient as an artist in addition to gleaning truth from the art that is created.
2: I'd like to go a little bit deeper into a few of the specific works you talk about. I think we'd be remiss to our listeners if we didn't do that. Um, and I have to say, I think one of my favorites was your chapter on Kristen Lavernstatter. I have not read the book, but now I really want to. Um, and I, I wonder if you could talk about your, your description in the book about her as virgin wife and mother and how living those unique roles leads her to God and leads her especially to holiness through surrender. And you talk about surrender as this long process of giving her will over to God. Can you expand on that a little bit more?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm wrestling with this idea right now about identity. And my favorite novels are the stories in which people find their identity in relationship to one another rather than as solely an individual. So, for example, all of those roles that she undertakes, right, she is um, she ends up being like the daughter to her father, Um, then the wife to her husband, the mother to her children, and then mother to other people's children's, right? So it's about finding uh, the way that she's supposed to live in regards to other people versus living for her own desires. And that's the controversy of the entire novel is um, Kristen, is Kristen just going to be Kristen or is she going to be Lavren's daughter, right? Where is her identity and which one has the priority on her? Kristen and Kristen's will often leads her astray. I mean, she ends up damning herself in several points in the narrative. um, It leads to a lot of suffering. It leads to a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. She hurts other people. She destroys other people when she's living only for herself versus when she is more sacrificial towards the end of the narrative and she recognizes her role and the ways that she belongs to others. It's just a beautiful narrative uh, for getting us to experience vicariously through her that Augustinian (laughs) move between my will and God's will, right, my desires and the desires of all those around me, how to uh, love others more than loving myself and how that actually plays out in particular circumstances uh, in, in people's lives.
2: I love that, especially highlighting her in her female role too is very relational and pulling out that medieval imagery of God that you said is less common now, but God is mother, God is having this relational motherly aspect towards us, which was very present in the medieval imagery and and people don't always know that now. But I love that you pulled that out in the book in that chapter.
0: Well, and Kelly Lattimore, who did the illustrations for the book,
2: so you can actually just buy
0: his images online as well. He recently just did a mother with hens, a a mother hen with uh, eggs as an icon, Hmm. Right how both God in the Old Testament and then Jesus in the New Testament calls himself a mother who wants to gather her her children um, beneath her like a mother hen. And I, I just, I love that image that you're, like you said, it's been relegated kind of to the sidelines in most Christian churches in the 20th century.
2: Wow, that's really cool. Another of the chapters I really enjoyed was the one focusing on the Diary of a Country Priest and especially your focus on... Holiness is something we can't always see, and this idea of giving with empty hands, giving something we don't have. Can you talk about how the country priest exemplifies that and how that might be a familiar feeling, even as we grow in holiness, to feel like we have nothing to give?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of the misunderstandings for people who don't actually read my book. So when I like post um, little tidbits or quotes from my book out of context or someone else does, um, the pushback immediately is like, we can't be holy. You can't self-improve. You can't get to God. You can't make yourself like God. And it's like, well, that's actually what I'm arguing in the book is that you... (laughs) any of those things. Um, But instead, right, it's about having the right kind of imagination that shows you you can't do those things, right? Having the the right way of seeing that it is not about you. And that's what the, the Diary of a Country Priest exemplifies, uh, I titled my chapter something about contemplation versus action, which, of course, are not verse each other, but that's how they're often described. And con- contemplation just means like how you see this. And the priest knows, I mean, he calls himself, he, he tells one woman, um, I am no more than... That poker is, that fire poker is to you and the way you're using it in the fireplace as I am God's instrument in his hand, right? I myself can do nothing on my own, but by God, he can do something with me, right? And so I think that that's, we have to kind of reframe our idea of holiness. And my book is ironic in doing that, it's basically saying um, you may have bought this for self improvement or like Christian living, but the reality is that you cannot do any of it. It has to be a move towards reception, a move towards uh, letting go, relinquishing, which in themselves are, are acts of agency, uh, but they do require less um, less of us to pretend that we have, we have the answers, we have the control, we have the ability to make changes or fix the world. It's less of a gnosis and more of um, a receipt, right? Like a, a gift.
2: Sure. And that idea of control was also very present in the second chapter about that hideous strength. The idea of communion and community being kind of a yielding of control to others and allowing them to form you as you pursue joy and pursue holiness. And then you present the counterpoint in that same story about the desire to control everything, which ends in complete destruction. Can you touch on that chapter a little more and expand on that theme of control and community?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the very idea of creating the utopia, which is what's happening in that hideous strength, right? We want to make the world a better place. We want to fix the suffering. We want to fix the brokenness. Um, But because we are so inept at doing those things, and it's impossible for us to do all of those things by ourselves, uh, we end up reconstructing Babel. We end up following in, in that novel, you follow satanic forces, right? The the floating head that literally controls you and uh, you end up leading more towards destruction than the communities in which they recognize they cannot fix the world. And instead they focus on what they can do. They can create gardens. They can listen to Bach. They can memorize Shakespeare. Um, they can love one another. They can give up the hierarchies and their places in it and, Instead, you know, not see a class system and not live like there's a class system. They can love other animals. They can uh, steward creation. I mean, it's just a whole different world in which you're not trying to make an ideal. Uh, you are just living small and beautifully in community. I mean, the, the idea for the chapter really grew out of um, Aristotle for me. <laughs> Because I remember the first time a professor taught me aerosol years ago, and he said, "Can like can you be a good person by yourself?" And of course, being eighteen or whatever I was, I was like, "Yes, absolutely." And then I completely proved wrong over the course of the class. And I thought, "Oh wow, I had never considered you can't you can't be a good person by yourself, right? Like they not only the requirement of the body politic, but just to be able to act, enact goodness. With other people, it's very much like how you treat others um and and so that chapter was attempting to say this book, when it is about holiness, means that it's about other people and not just a personal individual autonomous journey.
2: That's really profound, I think, especially a couple of the other chapters, you know they're all very similar they holiness is a unity, it's an integrity, and so you don't these themes continue throughout all the different chapters, even though you're highlighting specific elements. Uh, and now I'm reminded of sort of two of them, the holy foolishness, this idea of detachment that you have in Loris, where you, there's no respect for the world. It's that complete surrender we were talking about to let God write the story. Compared to, as well, the prophetic imagination in the two books that you highlight, Moses' Man of the Mountain and In the Time of the Butterflies, where there's these figures who are attempting to I think you call it restore the disinherited or raise up the disinherited. I think particularly in our time today, there's some confusion on what kind of world we want to make. And so when you have that idea of forcing an ideal or creating justice or making justice happen, the goal can be good, but the mindset is sometimes unfounded or not not rightly ordered. And so there's a lot of talk about justice and equality, trying to advocate for human rights, all very good things. But can you talk about how maybe we need some of those other elements like detachment and like community to really fulfill that prophetic role of raising up the disinherited in the way that they truly need to be raised up and the connection you see in our, in our modern culture about maybe how that's being done well or not done as well?
0: Yeah. So um, I put out a book in 2020 on Solzhenitsyn and American culture. And Solzhenitsyn says we need to move away from the language of human rights and towards the language of human obligations. It's a higher spirit. It's a higher way of viewing things. So what are we obliged to? to do because we belong to one another versus human rights would protect our own rights, right? Oftentimes, it's about um, what do I deserve? What do I get? What can I get of this situation versus um, what should I give in this situation? One of the things that struck home in 2020, one of the reasons this chapter was born was because of 2020. And I was reading um, Building the Bridge, I think is what it's called, Latasha Morrison. Um, With a group of people during the um, Black Lives Matters protest, we were reading that book. And one of the things I had not thought of is the small role that everybody has in giving up the things that have been given to them constantly. So one of the things she talks about is what capital have you received that you could give away rather than protect and hold on to, right? That you could give to other people. And so rather than have like this large scale of like dethroning systems or tearing down systems or um, working for justice on this huge national scale, what are some ways that like I have certain funds and I give them to people who can't afford to go to the school that I founded, right? I founded a private school. And so we pay for other kids to go to that private school because we've been, we received these funds. Or um, I have a platform Whereas for a you know long time, especially within Christian academies, like there was not as much of a platform for African Americans in the Christian communities or women in the Christian communities for that matter. Um, And so, how much of my platform can I constantly give away and make sure that I'm quoting people, raising people up, giving people you know endorsing people's books, etc. And so, thinking. Instead of like, what is, what have I received? And that's what that liberating arts ch- or liberating chapter was supposed to do is like, what have I received that I could give away rather than hold on to tightly?
2: Can you tie that in a little bit too with the materialism that we're seeing in our culture and maybe how a materialistic mindset along with these ideals sometimes don't always go together or we need to let go of some things to be able to see clearly in pursuing these ideals? Oh man, that's, it's so Solzhenitsyn. Like, <laughs> You know, the, um, the chapter that
0: I, the books that I wrote on was In the Time of the Butterflies and Moses, Man in the Mountain. Um, but they would just, it was hard not to quote Solzhenitsyn in between every single one of those books because <laughs> Solzhenitsyn talks in his Harvard address, right? He says, if humanism were right that man were born to be happy, he would not be born to die, right? The, the whole enterprise that chasing material goods and holding on to as many as you can only works if you're denying mortality, If instead you recognize your mortality, then there has to be a greater purpose than that, Um, which is a large part what In the Time of the Butterflies is about, right? Julia Alvarez writing, you know, these women were not about their material comfort. Instead, they knew it was more important to fight against the dictator. It was more important for them to suffer in prison, to lose their lives, to be martyred, because what they were doing was for something higher than their own happiness and their own material goods and comfort. And I think that's, I mean, to the point that they... You know, they die as young mothers and their children are left without mothers because what they were doing was so much more important than material comfort.
2: Yeah, that ties in really well with a couple of other topics I think we would need to cover to really understand holiness in a comprehensive way. And that's what you touched on in your last two chapters about suffering and death. These are not as appealing elements of holiness, as you very frankly say, but I think you do a really good job exposing them and and just trying to understand them better as essential elements. So maybe we can talk about sharing in Christ's suffering as an essential part of holiness and the, the works that you showcase in that chapter. Maybe you could explain a little bit about the stories and then show why that's so essential to the path for holiness. And then we can talk about death after that. Yeah, <laughs>
0: Well, I was lucky enough to receive a Biola, um, the Center for Christian Thought. I did a sabbatical there on suffering, which was so good because I was already writing this book and I was writing on Flannery O'Connor and suffering. And as I was walking through it, it was amazing to me to find how much not masochistically, but how she was trying to understand the desire for holiness, for suffering, and that sounds so antithetical to the modern believer who shuns suffering, moves away from it. Um, and yet, she wasn't. I mean, she wasn't sentimentalizing it. She she was someone who was suffering from lupus, and at the same time. She says, you know, I can, with one eye squinted, see it as a blessing, right? But I am sick of being sick. I know that this is hard. This is something that I will always bear until I die. And yet, what is that suffering doing, right? Is it, what, how do I respond to it? And the way she does that is she produces great literature. And so she desires the suffering because she knows what can come through it, not because the suffering in and of itself is good. And that was a distinction. It takes a lot of nuance. But it was something that I was seeing in a lot of these Catholic writers like Graham Green, Evelyn Waugh touches on this. Um, I pretty much could have done if any of the mid-20th century Catholic writers all write about suffering in this way of looking at it as an instrumental good, not as a good in and of itself. And that is something that's so contrary to our 21st century mind. I, I felt like it, it bared looking at closely and attending too well.
2: Certainly, I think it is important to make that distinction as not denying that it's not good in itself like you want to emphasize it still is an evil and not not something that is is intended by God but still something he can work through very powerfully and often does and i was interested too if you could talk about the relation with suffering and healing christ as sufferer was also christ as healer and i think there's a way we can participate in that as well and there are certain areas in christian circles too that that tend to glorify suffering as almost as good, um, and sometimes neglect the idea that Christ does want to heal. Can you, in your research and maybe in, in your experience as well, just through life and through the sorrows that I'm sure you've borne, can you talk about the connection that you've seen there and maybe where you've seen the healing element of suffering shine through? You know, Christian asceticism is probably where that shows up the most,
0: is asceticism then turns into or can turn into a glorification of Mortification—that's a lot of occasions. Um, but that you 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 mortify the flesh, right? You train it into submission by hurting it. And in in these novels, what you see is not necessarily people hurting themselves in order to to train their flesh, but to not indulge, to relinquish the things that make uh, life an indulgent or materialistic striving. And, uh, their form of asceticism is actually glorifying because it's by limiting their own desires and their own wants and their own needs that they're able to help their neighbor flourish and grow too. And so you see someone like in Sarah in, in the affair, right? She lets go of certain privileges that she has so that, uh, Richard can be healed so that, um, Bentley can be healed. She's she's not trying to hurt herself. That's not the end in and of itself, but by being ascetic, right? Like by denying herself certain things, those things then belong to other people. And I think that's the right way of viewing that kind of suffering, right? We don't just hurt ourselves or go without, like we don't sleep on rocks as pillows and we don't wear, you know, um, barbed wire around our chest or anything like that. Um, But is it good to to say, I'm not going to spend that kind of money because I can give it a different direction or something. Um, and that's what these, I think that's what those novels are trying to show us is that we've just been too extreme, um, in our ways of viewing it. So you have to like pick a side, either you're pro asceticism or you're against it. And I, I think there's just a lot more nuance to that question about what that suffering looks like for the believer than, than we've been willing to investigate.
2: Sure. And it's good to recognize which extreme you yourself tend towards so that you can temper it with the other. Right. I mean, you look at, I love Chesterton, um, but Chesterton was ginormous, right? Like, <laughs>
0: like I mean, he said something like, I, um, I drink wine and I, I smoke to avoid all vice or something like that. Right. Like, so it's the extreme indulgence, um, not again, I love Chesterton. He's wiser than I am in a lot of ways, but that it doesn't seem like you should move towards gluttony in order to overcome the the
2: ascetic move in
0: the church, right? Like we don't need to jump one way versus the other. Sure.
2: But yeah, I like that. You pointed out how suffering also is relational, the way that you talked about identity being relational. And I love this one quote you have in that chapter on suffering. These are, these are your words. Uh, you quote a lot of other great people, but I think you also say it really well. It may be that the only response to affliction in the world is to share in it, to take it on, and thus perhaps lessen it for others. Because in a sense, there's an element of suffering we can never understand. It's very mystical. And spe- specifically when you're in the midst of it, it's very hard to sometimes see the picture. And so I like that you highlight that too, that the response is not always something we can understand But it's always something we can share with other people.
0: Yeah. You know, and even reflecting on Christ on the cross, like he doesn't go up there because he likes the cross, you know, like Christ is on a cross because he loves the people. Right. Even Christ crying out, you know, why, oh God, have you forsaken me? It's not about him. It's so that other people will recognize that Psalm and go read Psalm 22 and recognize that he's the fulfillment of the Psalm. Like there's always this others centers, centered idea with suffering that makes the suffering uh, instrumentally good. It's it's only when it becomes self-absorbed that it seems
2: pointless. So let's talk about death now. <laughs> Your last chapter is called Ars Moriendi, The Art of Dying. I think it's very fitting that you close with that. Um, and it particularly struck me, I think you highlight three different works in that chapter, giving us models of how to die. But you point out in the chapter that we We don't see death in our culture anymore. We don't gather around our family members who are dying in order to learn how to die ourselves. It's very clinical. It's something we don't really talk about or witness. Um, Can you talk about how it's actually very important that we focus on it before that time actually comes for each of us? Yeah.
0: So. I have, I mean, I love focusing on death in a non-morbid way. I really enjoy, I think that it's necessary. I do it with my students all the time. For years, I've, you know, started classes being like, all right, um, draw your tombstone and what would you write on it, right? Like that's how I would start my entire class for humanities because if we don't know how to die well, we're not gonna know how to live well. But it was also providential that I read Lydia Dugdale's The, Art, the Lost Art of Dying Well. So good to really show you know she has done all the research and she is a a medical doctor at columbia so she has been really with patients dying and watching all these poor receptions of death these people really not knowing how to die well and so it became less of a theoretical the way that i was using it with my students like please imagine your death and very real in her world um practical how do you die well And I I started trying to draw connections between these two worlds. Okay, so how do we do that? I mean, it's impossible to imagine your death. Only via imaginative works do you cultivate an imagination for the unimaginable, right? If it's something that you yourself are not going to experience except once when it happens, how do you prepare for that? And, and the best way to prepare for it is to vicariously inhabit all these stories. I mean, every single story that I mentioned in that book, the people die, right? I mean, so I could have, as you said, the, the chapters become so integrated and connected. I could have gone through every single one of those chapters and just talked about how that saint died and how that embodies you know, a good death. Because all of those people, those figures, they all show us how to die well right? They all practice what they preach up until the end. And, um, so it's important for me to look at that, but that's also why of all the chapters I had to write on several books in that chapter, because it's as manifold as it is what holiness looks like in multiple people. And so that last chapter is also me, um, directing outwards and say like, here are some examples of the way that Christ reflects himself in his saints But it's so diverse in how he reflects himself in his saints. You know, it's a a reflection in all these different ways we, we live and all these ways we die.
2: So how would you say dying well looks if you had to tie together some threads of these different saints who die in different ways? What does dying well mean? I think it's some of the things we've said previously in looking at other attributes. Others focused,
0: right? I mean, Christ's dying words are not about him they're about other people. Um, The the country priest, right? Grace is everywhere. You know, he's giving these final words, these final admonitions to the people that he loves. So very others focused rather than self-focused. And that's hard for people, especially because grace is such a humiliating or death is such a humiliating place to be. Right. You, you are without, you cannot stop it. There is no power there. It's the most powerless place you are. And, uh, to love other people in that powerless state is really difficult. But, but having that others focused, giving those words, passing on, always be thinking beyond yourself, I think
2: um, is what, what a good death ends up looking like. Great. Well, just one more question for you. Which of these works that you focus on do you think is most woefully unknown by American readers and should have much wider circulation than it currently does? Uh, I would say Kirsten Lovren's Daughter, Sigrid
0: Unset's novel should, I mean, everyone, you should read it in college. Like every single person should read that before they graduate college. I don't, I mean, I say the same thing about Brothers Karamazov, but at least more people know it, even if they haven't read it. <laughs> if I said the same thing about Kristen Lovren's Daughter, there's still a vast majority that would be like, wait, what? Um, but to me, that's one of those novels that all people should be reading everywhere and should have been reading for the last hundred years.
2: Great. Well, I'm definitely going to put that on my list. <laughs> put it to the top. <laughs> I will. I will. Jessica, thanks so much for talking today. It was really great to have you on Act in Mind. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.